This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Dennis Sullivan for our Christmas Day podcast. He has compiled 62 of his Enterprise columns into a just-released book, Homeward Bound. Sullivan's focus in compiling his book and in life is on the local community. His work on restorative justice, he wrote a handbook on the subject, had international reach but focused too on the local, whether in South Africa or London, is the only way restorative justice can work, finding ways communities can resolve disputes without violence. Sullivan hopes his book will encourage readers to look at their own lives and write about them. Let's listen to him read a Christmas column. When I was 12, an adult boy at St. Mary's of the Assumption Church, on my way to serve Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, I looked intently at the winter sky in search of the Star of Bethlehem. I learned about the star in catechism class and grew to believe that it returned every year and that finding it in the darkness of night, I, like the Magi of the first Christmas, would find the heralded child born in the manger. The Christmas carol, We Three Kings, which my family sang and was played incessantly on the radio, and so, O oh, star of wonder, star of night, star with world beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide me to thy perfect light. Still proceeding. It meant the star came every year for every believer to see. Within 10 years, in college courses on the Greek scriptures, the New Testament, I was introduced to concepts such as form criticism, redaction criticism, and midrash. These methods exhorted that in reading biblical texts, it was critical to define the literary form and historical context of biblical passages in order to understand how the redactor, the editor, shaped the narrative to express certain theological truths and reveal the purpose of his writing. In the case of the narrative of Jesus' birth, I found out there were two stories, one by Matthew, the other by Luke, and that they did not put forth the same facts, in fact contradicted each other. I was dissatisfied. How could there be a discrepancy in the Bible? I was told the stories were parable, as Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan explained in the first Christmas what the Gospels really teach about Jesus' birth. Stories that might not be factual, but nevertheless contain deep truths. A Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am, approach would not get at the truth. In examining the Christmas stories critically, I had to include, conclude that there was no manger, that there was no swaddling clothes, that there was no star of night to lead me to the house or stable. The two Gospels differ on the location of the event, so I stopped looking for the star of Bethlehem. You have just heard the voice of Dennis Sullivan. Welcome to our Christmas Day podcast, Other Voices. Dennis is a philosopher, an historian, a poet, 
and a columnist for the Altamont Enterprise. He has just published another book. This one is called Homeward Bound. It is 62 stories that our regular readers will be very familiar with because they appeared in monthly columns in the Altamont Enterprise field notes. But once they are arranged in a book, they take on a new force. So welcome, Dennis. Hi, hi, Melissa. Hello, Marcello. Marcello is on sound, we might mention. Yes, that's co-publisher Marcello Yaya, who's always behind the scenes making things run smoothly. What struck me as I was looking through this book last night was every year you revisit the story of Christmas, and you do it in different ways. And I'm not going to tip off readers on what this year's Christmas column is about, (laughs) but I love it. And I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about the different ways. I Maybe it doesn't come right to mind for you. I've just looked at them all. But the different ways that you write about Christmas. We've just heard the beginning of the 2015 column you know, column for Christmas. But there was a a deep look at the meaning in 2016. And then the next year, it was the Christmas story was about the well of silence where the words are born and about believers camping by that well so they can hear the silence speak. And in 2017, it was about the news of an angel coming in the dark of Christmas. And in 2018, it was on how Christmas Day is the perfect reconciliation. And in 2019, it was a loving community, is your mother and brothers, which always you are born to again. So it's just, I wonder... If you could kind of talk in general, Dennis, about how you come up with so many different ways of looking at a single topic, because each one of those, well, of course, the story of Christmas stays the same. Dennis's interpretation of it and the meaning that you draw from it is so very unique. Well, uh I, I, for me, the Christmas story is always a story about silence. And uh, as, as the Travis Monk Thomas Burton uh, once wrote and spoke about on many occasions that people think when they get into the realm, the world, the depths of silence, that they are by themselves. Burton says, and I believe this, and this is the case with me as well, that when you get deep into silence, you feel more connected to the world about you, uh, to the people about you. And for me, my commitment to my family, my community, my newspaper, uh, my uh, poet friends, uh, it it becomes deeper. So each one of those... uh, each one of those columns is like a Brandenburg concerto in a way, you know? <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it has its own sort of fugish uh, way of dealing with this uh, sense of, for me, this sense of deep depth of silence. 
Does that make sense? It does, but it's. I think there's more to it than that. One of the, your columns, um, and I, you write quite frequently about movies, and I often haven't seen them. So when I read your column, I go to see the movie. You wrote about uh, Philip Groning's um, Carthusian monks, yes. and those are men that live in silence, and it's an entire movie about. Silence, and it just—it yeah. seems on the surface almost counterintuitive that someone like yourself, who is a writer of words, if not spoken, written, that doesn't it seem almost the opposite? You're somebody that uses words so effectively, and they're so central to your being that silence. Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm sorry. No, no, uh, go ahead. Did you finish? Yeah, I'd finish. Uh, yeah. No, it, it 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 really is a paradox in a way, isn't it? Because I I, I can be like a Gabby Irishman as well. You know what I mean? <laughs> and in uh, this COVID period now, <laughs> George and my wife <laughs> would hope I was less support. Um, but but the, the, the uh, I've always had great respect for the Carthusians because they lived a very solitary life. Uh, in deep silence, into great silence, as Cronin mentioned in his movie or title of the movie, um, and it, 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 for me, as I've told you before, Melissa, the uh, in our in our correspondences, the the columns that I write are month long meditations for me. So I start. With a line, I, I, I always believe in Paul Valéry's, the French poet. Uh, he would always say, "Poets, writers, and you know this as a you know our, as our great editorial writer. Uh, you, you, the poet, the writer uh, gets unlin donne, u n e unlin l i g n e d o n e acute accent s. Uh, a line is given to you, and from that. Uh, there, there is a world below that line, and it's the writer's job uh, to find out what is underneath that line. And and exploring that, I mean, for, for a columnist, uh, in a way that the columnist does not become a preacher. And I'm always aware of that. Anytime I write something is to... To, to beware of, of any sense that I might have of being a propagandist or a preacher. Does, it, does that make sense, or that I missed the boat on that one? No, I think that's fascinating. So you have a sense that this given line, the Dunne, is how, how do yes. you how do you find that line? It, how is it given to you? <laughs> does your muse hand it over, or do you you're reading a book and it pops out, or you just oh. how because. Uh, Sometimes it seems like it might come from a movie because you write quite a bit about movies or things in popular culture. Yep. Sometimes it seems to come. I mean, where where does this given line, this Dunne, come from? Well, it, it's interesting. I, I have thousands of them. I told you that once before. I have thousands of ideas, and they're always floating around. Uh, and at some point, uh, I realize if something grabs a hold of me. And I say, wow, that is something that I, as a representative of the community, 
meaning me, writing for an award-winning, I might add, weekly newspaper, would like to say something to our community, our very diverse community. Take the Hilltowns all the way down to Voorheesville, to Gilderland. I mean, the, the, the diversity of the community is incredible. But to be able to say something to that community that I feel is important for my relationship with that community. And, and, uh, and so I, like, my, my next column for January will be on, this is, this is like, a, like I used to go to the movies on Saturday and the father would say, and next week, uh, it will be on Mel Brooks's interview with Conan O'Brien. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we have, that's what it'll be. It'll be on, and, and how Mel Brooks talks about great Irish writers and his view of that. They're talking about comedy in the beginning, and they move on from that. But what drew me to that was watching Mel Brooks interact with Conan O'Brien and how deeply Conan O'Brien listened to what Mel Brooks had to say. And he listened to the context, and he was interested in, and listened to the context out of which Mel Brooks was speaking. And I think the columns that I write, I try always to listen to the context of the community of Warriorsville, and Byrne, and Knox, and Westlow, and, and Gilderland. I always try, there's always something in, in those communities. When I read your, when I read your editorials, or I read something that Noah wrote, or something that uh, Sean wrote, uh, those things strike me, and they go, oh, wow, this is something that's really going on, and I might have something to add to that dialogue. So that's fascinating. Just to let listeners know, Noah is Noah Zwiefel, our Hilltown reporter, and Sean is Sean Mulcairin, our New Scotland reporter. But what interests me is this idea that you have in mind as you're writing a community a geographical area, a sense of an audience waiting for your words. Um, is that different than some of the other books that you've written um, well, over the years? Yeah. You know, I, like especially, you know, in your role as somebody who was a scholar on justice. Um, right. And did you have a certain academic audience in mind for that? Or... Um, you know, how, how does it work, the relationship between you as a writer and who it is you're writing for? You well, uh, the, the last group of, of books and, and articles, and when I edited that, uh, that, that International Journal Contemporary Justice Review, uh, the, the last batch of materials that I was engaged in had to do with restorative justice. And which was really, which is, and then was really a way in which communities can resolve disputes in nonviolent ways, uh, such that the needs of all the people involved in, say, a harm situation uh, could come out and have their needs met. So it, it really has to do with local matters. Uh, for years, I started different groups, poetry groups. Uh, in Warriorsville, in, in the area, we had uh, we had dismissed having poetry laureate contest. Uh, I, I, I ran for many many years the uh, the library uh, uh, poetry group on Tuesdays uh, every other Tuesday, 
And I always had a commitment to the local. So my commitment to the Altamont Enterprise, and to you, and to Marcello, and, and to our colleagues there, is to this local community. And you, one can, you can, one can, you, one, you as in one, can write about international matters. Uh, I mean, I've written about Gachacha and Rwanda, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, in, in uh, South Africa. But all those things have to do with what takes place at the local level. It's their local level. And I'm writing about that at the same time, thinking about and feeling and experiencing what takes place on a local level. So I've shunned away from being a, uh, uh, avoided being a proselytizer for myself. And a lot of academics I knew, uh, they were into promoting themselves. But it, I always found that to be kind of defeating because the more time one, you, I, spent promoting yourself, the less commitment you could have to the local level, to the people. So they, it's, you know, they, one, at a conference we had once, somebody asked Dan Berrigan, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic priest, I'll say that for the audiences who don't know, uh, a peace activist for many, many years. Uh, somebody asked him, like, in a very sort of, I don't know, this discouraged, despairing sort of way, like, uh, you do all these acts with people, and sometimes there doesn't seem to be any return uh, for, for what you do. And he said, you, you don't do it for that reason. You, you do it because you do it, and that's your commitment. And my commitment, to go back to what I said earlier, is the commitment to the local. So I'm not into a career or a name or but, but if and if you do that then you're sort of selling out your commitment to the local does that make sense yeah but what i it does make sense and what i find absolutely fascinating in what you've just said is here we are in an era where the importance of the local is rapidly disappearing people are connected to the internet people are hooked into larger issues. There are so many people that are follow national issues and say subscribe to the New York Times, which I think is a great thing to do. <laughs> but at the yep. same time, they ignore the issues that are happening right in their backyard. And it's interesting to me, because I hadn't realized until you just answered my question, you're book, The Handbook of Restorative Justice, A Global Perspective, I was thinking of in that camp, you know, that you were writing for this worldwide audience, but really you've just brought that right back to the local because you were explaining how restorative justice itself works only on the local level where the person harmed has to be restored. And that's a community function. You can't do it through it the internet, you know. <laughs> you have to do it face-to-face with the people involved. So, yeah, that... In this era, I would say having a commitment to the local is almost a radical viewpoint. Um, but I am, but I am a radical. I guess you are in both senses I, of the word. Wait, wait, your wait, root, wait, your root causes. What do you mean? You guess. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got sixty two stories there. <laughs> yeah, I sure do. So tell no. me about. <laughs> let's talk about the book itself because oh, God. what yeah. what. Difference does it make to, and I think it does make a difference, um, 
what difference does it make to have these essays rather than coming out one week at a time? And of course, I know you write on one of your Christmas essays how much you love Dickens. And um, here he wrote for magazines one one installment at a time. And then, of course, they were uh, bound into books. And I just wonder um, what the difference is when you have these 62 stories all together in one binding where someone can read through the layers uh, all at once? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I always hope that, it, 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 believe me, I tell people this all the time, all the time. And, and I, 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 I'm always committed, uh, always thinking about uh, a column about encouraging people, particularly during the virus in their 60s and 70s, to sit down and start telling the story of their lives. And uh, like for the kids and grandkids or for the nieces and nephews and for the community at, at, at large. In other words, what, what? Where did you grow up? Well, what? What? Uh, what did your street look like? Who? Who did you talk to? Uh, who were you not allowed to talk to uh, for reasons of religion? Uh, Catholics uh, early on, but when I grew up, you were not supposed to talk to Jews. You were not supposed to talk to Protestants. You, you, there were all sorts of restrictions. Uh, on, on, on who, who you, and, and for people to start talking about those kind of stories, I, I'm hoping that this book, this collection, will encourage people to start uh, thinking about their own lives um, and, and, and where they came from and, and what their family, I, I wrote a column once, uh, one of the columns there, and what your family stands for. Uh, and you can't get any more local than that. Um, so that's what I hope. I hope the people reading sixty-two stories will will be encouraged to, uh, you know, to think about. I, I I taught that course. I say taught. I I always laugh at that because nobody ever paid attention to me in a, in a group. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, for, for, all of, for all those years, I taught that course, writing personal history for family, friends, and posterity. And one of our colleagues for years wrote a wonderful book, Bryce Butler, a wonderful book of stories, which I, at one point, uh, I'm going to, you know, take up, which I told you before, Melissa, that I, I would get into. But but Bryce was very much interested in what took place in, in the town of Gilderland and in the Altamont uh, school system when he was growing up. And so I would hope that these stories, people looking at them, would go, oh, wow, yeah, I, I like Christmas, too, or... Oh, I saw that movie. Yeah, and that—I guess that would be, you know, uh, I. When I read the stories, I would say there is nothing more enjoyable for me. <laughs> I got to watch this now. Then, when the column comes out, and I get the paper on Thursday afternoon, and I sit down and I read the story. Because it is if the story, the column was written by someone else. It, it's it's something that I was given with uh, with Bradley. Uh, you know, did that uh, the, the on sixty minutes uh, did an interview with Bob Dylan, and he's saying, "Hey, he says you wrote all those songs." He says, uh, 
could you write those, those songs out? Where did those songs come from? And Dylan would go, I really don't know. It's wonderful. Uh, to, you know, it's a wonderful thing to take a look at. And I have a number of times. And he's just, I really don't know. He's like, I couldn't write that stuff anymore. But I understand, I'm saying that. <laughs> I'm in no way comparing myself in, in the least to Bob Dylan, but the process. Say that those stories come from what I said earlier, that meditation and from that silence. And it, it, it's so it's 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 like it's, it's like it's like a gift to me. So isn't uh, that know, interesting? We, when you see it in your newspaper, you get it on Thursday, you open it up, you read it as if you hadn't written it. You read it that's right. as, oh, isn't that wonderful? Because I read my stories and see all the things I wished I had changed and written differently. Good for you. So tell me <laughs> well, a little I, I, about... I never, by the way, I'm sorry, what? No, about, it wasn't just the mention of Dylan, but the idea, so much of your writing to me borders on poetry, and I know you're a poet as well. Just if you could talk a little about the differences or maybe the similarities, the relationship between writing poetry and writing prose, writing essays. Well, you know, it's interesting. Ferlinghetti, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, for those who are not familiar with uh, poetry, uh, who uh, started and still runs, he's like 100 years old now, uh, said, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so ago, he said, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't write poetry. I, I would have written all prose. And the reason for that is, one of his reasons was that uh, the public, meaning the person next door, you, know, you, could, you could go to 128 uh, Maple Avenue, or I could go to 27 Voorheesville Avenue here. Well, you know, I don't, I don't know who lives there, but... And you would say, well, what poems have you read this week? And the person would go, oh, poems? What do you mean by poems? Um... Uh, and you say, well, did you read the newspaper? You say, oh, yeah, I read the newspaper. I read the Times Junior. I read the Outdoor Enterprise. Or did you read any Danielle Steele or uh, uh, James Patterson? They say, oh, yeah, yeah, I read it when I go to the beach. So they, they'll read that, but they, they will not read poetry. And the reason for that is because poetry takes a certain amount of energy. And the narratives of the poem is not... As strong, so this is the way this is answering your question between between poetry and and, 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 uh, and nonfiction. You know, the, the column is um, I, I I'm forced to uh, the, the the columns really are are poems. So I'll sit down and like when I started with the Mel Brooks. Uh, Conan O'Brien piece, I'll start with the first line, Olid Dode. And I'll sit there and I'll wait until the next line comes. And for years, what I've done, if I have, say, 600 words, you know, usually I write 1,000, 1,100 words. If I have 600 words and I get stuck, I go, oh, that's not right. I force myself. Uh, now it's not forcing. In the beginning, I had to force myself. And now it's not. It's just an automatic process. I force myself to go back to the beginning and start all over until I get to that spot. And to see if the change that I made uh, creates, still creates a bump of sorts. And if it doesn't, then I move to the next sentence. 
And then, so if I get stuck there, then I have to start all over again. So that's, but that's poetry. Um, Virgil said when he was writing the Aeneid that and he would write like three lines a day, which was a big day. He said he, he, he licked those lines into existence like a mother bear would lick her cubs. And, and that's essentially, oh, you know that. Well, listen, you, you know, your editorials every week uh, are, many weeks are poetic, are pieces of poetry. So uh, you, you understand what I'm talking about. It's like you start, you get the line, and you, and you, you, you go to a certain level of yourself, the silence level where we started out, uh, and, and, and from that silence, you know, comes the, uh, comes the writing. I just love <laughs> that Virgil quote. He licked those lines yeah. into existence like a mother bear licks her cubs. So that's yeah. kind of like a nurturing sort of uh, <laughs> way of uh, describing writing. Isn't that interesting? So is that when you write poems, which you do, do you use that same process that you just described, you know, forcing yourself to go through it from the start? until you hit that bump and see if the change gives you oh, absolutely. passage? Oh, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I would say that the pieces that write for the paper or a poem, uh, the pieces that write for the paper, the columns, oh, those things are edited like a hundred times. Uh, literally. Yeah, it makes that, my job. Like, it oh, makes my point. job really easy. <laughs> no editing required. Well, but, 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 but there's not you, there's not a word out of place. Yeah. That's there's a, no... There's no room in my pieces to stick a crowbar in and, and to loosen up between a verb and an object or between an adjective and a word. There's no room in there to fit a crowbar. The, 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 the lines don't leak. Do you? Do and you... I find that a lot of people, oh, you know, that I read. I mean, it's, that's why my, I, I love Janet Malcolm, for example, uh, or uh, Joe Didion. I mean, those those are two of my parents. When you, when you look at the work of Janet Malcolm, for example, I mean, she tells a story that's, it goes from beginning to end. There's, there's, you can't stick a crowbar in there. Yeah. It, 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 in a sense, anyway. Does, does that make sense, too? Or? It does. It does. But, so, um, but, but, do you but, ever but, read me, out me, loud? You. Do you read your words out loud? I thought of that when you did the no, wonderful no graduation. You did the graduation speech, actually. <laughs> for right, our, right. our keepsake graduation edition. And I thought, right, wow, right. that should be read out loud. Um, but we should get out the basic information. So if people want this book, it's called Homeward Bound. And how can how can people get this book, Dennis? Well, this thing is on Amazon yeah. uh, now. I, 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 I've never put... But the, the publishers that I wrote stuff for, they, they used to put stuff on Amazon. But anything that I've done myself or... I, I never put it on. It, 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 it's part of that promotion thing and whatever. But it's on Amazon. It's available at the book house in Stuyvesant Plaza. It is available in, in the, uh, the book house annex uh, in Troy. Okay. Uh, and the, it, 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 just tell us about the physical book, too. How did you come up with the title and this picture? The The... More than three quarters of the cover is a picture that Dennis took, and it is you've got to see it. It's this just vibrant shades of green 
with a path. I think it is the rail trail. Is it the rail it trail? Is, it is. And it just tunnels down to this infinite future. <laughs> All so right. <laughs> just tell us why you selected that as your cover image and how you why the name Homeward Bound. Well, if you go to you, it's Gilderland. Uh, on Wednesdays, they have a 10% discount for sieges. They have military all the time, uh, but 10% for sieges. And if you go to the people over there uh, in the past, uh, I used to call it the foot-in-the-grave discount. <laughs> okay. And... and, and the photo is a foot in the grave. If you look at that, and it was a rainy day, nobody was on that rail trail. And the rain had stopped. I was on my bike. I stopped. I got off, and I took the photo. If you look all the way down, all that's waiting for you, me, anybody, is that white light. And the homeward bound is, you know, I, my foot, I got a foot in the grave. <laughs> that's the reality. And uh, so... The, 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 so that's, that explains that explains the homeward bound. We know what home that is. It's like uh, you know that, that. Anyway, I like the cover too. I do too. I, I like but the I had too. not intuited that meaning. I saw it as like a life's journey, and here's the path and home. Probably because, unlike you, I am not religious. It was a sense of well, you find a sense of belonging in reading through these essays. You find a sense of belonging to humanity. You find a sense of home, not as an afterlife. That's not how I see home. But home is a sense where, you know, what is the Robert Frost line? When you have to go there, they have to take you in. You know, home is that place. And so these essays kind of send you on that path. That's how I read it. But um. Yeah, but, you know, you, we, we, we talked about that a little exchange of emails. Maybe you didn't get me. I, uh, I am not formally religious at all. Yeah. And when I say the light down there, I don't mean like an afterlife. I have no sense of afterlife. You know, when the, when the light goes out, I mean, you know, there's nobody going to replace that bulb. That's that's uh, I don't have any sense of that at all. All right. Uh, but the religion, which I said to you in a recent email, the religio, you know, the legio part of religion, the religio is, is where the religio is uh, where like ligament comes from, and it, it has to do with connection. That's what we were talking about earlier, uh, being connected to a community of value, and all my reading is always about writers who talk about community and, and the value of community. That's why our paper, if I might say our paper, is so important. It really is like, it, 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 it's a religious, in, in the most, like people say, uh, democratic with a small day, religious with a small, a smallest all possible. It's, it's, it's connected to all things uh, in this region. And that's the value of the paper. And I, and I might say, you know, for, for people listening, that uh, the fact that we have you, Melissa Hale Spencer, as our editor, and who we appreciate and encourage this kind of writing in the paper, I mean, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. It's like, it, 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 I, I could think of 10, ten other editors who would, who, would, who would look at some of these Christmas pieces and... and uh, you know, call for help. <laughs> Not so, at all. You know, so so huh? I, I'm 
blushing. Let's have a closing thought from you about yes. anything you want to leave our listeners with. Well, uh, the, the, if you read the author bio in the back, you say, oh, what's that all about? Uh, what I spent most of the author bio in the back talking about is uh, the Smith's Tavern Poet Laureate Contest and how we created uh, Edie Abrams and myself and Mike Berg. We ran that for a bunch of years. I don't know how many, seven or eight or nine or ten. And that was, talk about community, that was a celebration. We brought poets from the region. We talked to John and John over the Smitties who offered cash prizes. They actually did better. Uh, because so many people came <clears throat> and they bought so many beers and pieces and stuff. <laughs> they, they offset those cash prizes uh, uh, many times over. But it has to do, we we had judges, people came, it was fun. Uh, we had music in between. We had uh, a, a fiddler, Ernie Horvath, who was, the, who was a, 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 a violinist for the Albany Symphony for years. Uh, he, he came with a, with a group of people, and it was a celebration. So that's that's what the book is. The book is a celebration of the local. That's that's the last thing. It's a celebration of the local. And I hope, like, for Christmas, for those who celebrate Christmas, I mean, I don't even celebrate Christmas uh, in a way. With the, that's, the, that's the irony, uh, is that people will commit themselves uh, to, you know, local happenings. Uh, and, and the last note is, 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 you know, the village of Warriorsville, I've been a historian for since 1986. Uh, they, you know, they did their master plan a couple of years ago, and they asked me to write an introductory essay on the history of the village. Now, I didn't do any sort of formal, you know, in 1880, uh, you know, that sort of thing. But at the end, it, it, it had to do with what kinds of social capital, if I might say, what kinds of resources did the Voorheesville community have over time to help each other uh, in the community to sort of realize their dreams. And a couple of people in the community, I said, oh, by the way, I said at the end that there really is no place in Voorheesville, and it might hold true for other areas, you know, that, that are newspaper regions, that there, there is no longer uh, connective tissues in Voorheesville where people are brought together. St. Matthew's would have a group. The Methodist Church would have a group. You get down to New Scotland, their Presbyterian Church. But there is nothing secular, so to speak, that joins that community together. Oh, our newspaper does. Mm. <laughs> the newspaper is, is, is a venue in that sense. So anyway, uh, you know, to end it, I, I hope that is a celebration where people can begin to rethink about their community. How's that? That's great. I love it. Thank you, Dennis. 